Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology Podcast, better known as the ASHI Podcast. Today, we'll be chatting with the most recent Women in ASHI publication entitled, Dr. Lillian M. Abbo, Blazing Trails and Building a Global ID Family from Caracas to Miami. This is really exciting. We have Dr. Abbo here in the studio with us. Like all ASHI publications, this is available for download free on the ASHI website, completely open access. And as always, my co-host is the one and only Deputy Editor, Dr. Priya Nori. Dr. Nori, take it away. Thank you, Gonzalo. So it's my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce our guest today, Dr. Lillian Abbo. She studied medicine in Venezuela and completed her internship in the Bronx, followed by medicine residency and ID fellowship in Miami. She's Associate Chief Medical Officer for the Infectious Diseases Division at the Jackson Health System and Professor of Clinical ID at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and the Miami Transplant Institute. She's co-authored over 120 peer-reviewed publications, multiple book chapters, and has been invited to speak at many national and international meetings. Her research is focused on infection prevention and stewardship and clinical management of solid organ transplant patients with multidrug-resistant infections. She's received numerous awards for her contributions to the advancement of women in medicine and recently completed an executive master's in business administration. She's also the first Hispanic female to serve on the IDSA Board of Directors. Welcome, Dr. Abbo. It's an honor to have you on with us today. The honor is mine. I highly appreciate the invitation, and it's a real pleasure to be with both of you today. Oh, thank you so much. What a great introduction. Thank you, Dr. Nori. So, Dr. Abbo, today's discussion is really about journey, specifically your journey. So we're really excited about it. Can you briefly summarize your journey from Caracas to Miami? How did you get to be the person that you are today? Well, I invite everyone to read the article. (laughs) So I think that really summarizes the journey. And and I have to congratulate Priya because she did a lot of editing and and polishing my my English. So I'm very grateful for that. So English is my second language, even though I was born in the U.S. and my parents were doing the residence. My dad is a doctor. He was doing his residency. My mom was studying economics. And so we moved when I was three months old. So I grew up in Venezuela and that opened to me a really amazing opportunities because it has given me the chance to see different cultures, seeing diversity and seeing disparities from the front lines and always bringing back my roots, even, you know, to when I moved to the U.S., staying in touch with who I really are. And as you get older in life, I think you appreciate more your roots and and you tend to be more authentic. And I try to lead with authenticity. So I came to the U.S. after I completed medical school in Venezuela. And medical school in Latin America, as in many other parts of the world, you go straight from high school. So I was 16 years old when I graduated high school, and I went straight into medical school. So you are 16, 17, you don't really know what you want. And then, you know, you go from being a great high school student to being one more of the many people who are going into med school. And med school in Venezuela was, we only had one really solid medical school in Caracas, and it was one of the top uh, in Latin America and very good. It was the best in, in Venezuela, but it was a very competitive 
positive one. I have amazing friends who are still my my lifelong friends. And after six years, I came to the U.S. to do my residency training. I had to take the USMLEs like many of you. I had to start working for free for a year and, and getting letters of recommendations, show who you are. And I always say that success is not a straight line. People think that, oh, it's so easy to get to the top. It's it's really, you know, a crossroads and you're going to fall in many places and you're going to get back up. So resilience and stay focused on where you want to go has been key. And then I, I was very grateful for mentors that I found and I had the opportunity to start in the HIV division. And then from there, and I went to Jacoby. I did my internship in New York in internal medicine and then I finished it in Miami. Um, my husband was here and we decided to come back to Miami. So being Hispanic, both New York and Miami have been areas where, where to me, it's important to stay close to my to my family and to my culture. And then I ended up doing ID with the goal of saving the world from HIV. But then when I started doing my fellowship and fell in love with transplantation and to me, transplant, I always say it's like HIV on steroids. It's giving people the chance of life for a second time. And that really gelled amazingly well with antimicrobial stewardship and antimicrobial resistance. And then life has taken me to the path of infection control. So my career has been planned in certain ways and other things are opportunities that open and you just do the best you can with the opportunities that life presents. That's great. You touched a lot of really cool themes, including the concept of not everything being a straight line or a straight path. And you have to have some flexibility, be open for new ideas, and new experiences. Really great. Lillian, I'm so happy to hear you give a nod to Jacoby Hospital, which is, as you know, it's uh, nearby to where I practice in the Bronx, and it's our safety net hospital there. It is a pillar of the community, so thank you for highlighting that. So the next question is um, specific to your career, which is, how is stewardship and IP different in the transplant population? Is it more nuanced? Do we need a more subtle approach at the patient and provider level? And what gaps of understanding remain? Wow, I, I love that question because, yes, I think it's different. There are some similarities, but there are also some big differences, right? When stewardship started, and I started doing stewardship, you know, way back after I finished my fellowship, right? Um, there was not much published on, on immunocompromised hosts. That's usually the area where everybody was excluding. And in most clinical trials, when you test a drug or any new product, usually transplant patients are excluded, right? These are actually the most challenging ones because nobody knows what duration was enough, what dose was enough. If you have someone on CVVHD and on ECMO and, you know, how much is really the drug penetration? And the initial papers on stewardship were very much focused on cost savings, Right. And sometimes in transplantation is the opposite. It's not about saving money. It's really bringing value, really delivering the best care and the best outcome. So how do you merge that and make that in, into something that institutions and C-suites are going to buy into and support you? And then at the same time, what is it that we need to bring to the, to the frontline staff, to the physicians, to the surgeons, to the nephrologists, to the coordinators? to work in, in this immunocompromised patient population, but at the same time be good stewards because they see the consequences of antibiotic resistance. So we we started doing a lot of education to the point that some of the surgeons were telling me, hey, you need to stop antibiotics. You're going to develop resistance. And, and it was funny, right? We had a patient with endocarditis and he wanted me to treat with 10 days of antibiotics, not for weeks because it could develop resistance. So we had to re-educate people like, you know, how long infections need to be treated. But at the same time, for infection control, it's very challenging in this population because NHSN is outdated. 
some of the guidance that we have do not include patients with short gut syndrome, and we are a big multivisceral transplant center. So the guidelines for Clapsy and CAUTI cannot be applied to some of my populations, right? So if anyone from CDC is listening, I do think you need to bring more transplant ID, infection control, and stewardship people to the table when we develop these guidelines. And how do we make things that are realistic to the care that we deliver to these highly vulnerable patients? And people are living longer. So we are doing, you know, 21st century surgery, but we still are using practices that are outdated. So we need better baseline, better numbers. And yes, not everything is the new shiniest device. Uh, you know, now a lot of it is technology. Everybody wants to sell us something shiny and, and new, and this is going to disinfect your entire hospital. Sometimes it's back to the basics. So yeah, there are some things in infection control that it's hand hygiene and cleanliness of the environment. It's a basic, right? So those things are similar, but in stewardship and in infection control, we transplant, you have to deal with a lot of egos, a lot of personalities, and you need to be a team player. And I always say there's no I in team. You need to be one of them. I tell my stewardship pharmacist, you can't do stewardship from the basement or the computer. You need to round and you need to see the patients. You need to be one of the team. They need to see the value. So once you're part of the team, they will listen to your recommendations. And that's 50% of the battle. Very cool. I think Priya and I have discussed multiple times the value of team players. So thank you for bringing up that cool concept. And also, I think you mentioned something that's also been somewhat, uh, would say, in vogue or at least discussed frequently, not only on this podcast, it's been in some of the publications, is a concept of precision medicine. And what you're saying is we need more precision in the way we apply our stewardship and maybe some infection control uh, parameters to select populations and individuals. Absolutely. So we need precision infectious diseases. And now with technology and artificial intelligence, I think that's going to be more attainable because you can have precision genomics, you can have precision microbiome, you can have precision in understanding how someone reacts to immunosuppression, what level of immunosuppression they need, rather than giving the same dose of ProGraph to everyone, right? Does everyone need bacterial prophylaxis for PJP or more targeted based on different risks? You know, there are risks that are inherent to the host. There are risks that are inherent to the environment. And this whole concept of epigenetics and how our environment affects what we do will contribute to, this, to the field of precision medicine. So I do think the future is bright, but we just need to know how to use those tools effectively. Otherwise, we're going to be in the pre-antibiotic era. Like, yeah, we thought antibiotics were going to solve the world, and then we created this mess. So listeners, stay tuned. There's more on precision infection prevention right around the corner. Yes. There. Now let's get back to you, Dr. Abbo. So what, you've obviously been very successful. So tell us about the biggest drivers of your personal and professional success. You know, share your pearls of wisdom with us. So I am my biggest critic. I always feel like, you know, an imposter. I feel like, oh my God, there's so much I should be doing. So the first advice I have to people is look at yourself in the mirror and be kind to yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. The race is against yourself not against others. There's always somebody who's going to have more papers than you, more grants than you, more titles than you. So if you want to be successful, focus on being your best self. And that starts with building confidence, building knowledge, but also know what you want to accomplish. Dream big, right? The path will follow, but dream big. The second thing is be grateful. Be grateful to others. Hold the ladder for other people. I've always been grateful to my mentors. There are some mentors that I have called after years just to thank them. And they said, like, you're the first person that calls me after 
30 years I've been mentoring people, right? So pick up that phone. Don't just send a text message. Pick up that phone and, and call your mentors because you probably have mentors throughout your life and, and be grateful to others and help the people that are coming after you. I think that to me is part of success. Um, the other part is being passionate. I'm very passionate in everything I do. So do it with passion or don't do it at all. That's that's one of my mottos. And then build solid teams and attract the best talent because we all work so much better when when we are surrounded by people that are smarter than us. So seek collaborations. Very early in my career, I learned that from one of my mentors. Write an email, contact this person who has published a paper in a topic that you think you know you want to develop some research on and ask them if you can collaborate. What's the worst thing that can happen? And they say no, and then you lost an email. But reach out to people, go to the annual meeting, go to ID Week, go to Shea, you know, join the societies because you're going to meet amazing people who have the same purpose that are driven. And that may be in your institution or outside your institution, and they can open doors or windows for you. A lot of a lot there for us to meditate on. Would you say, Priya? <laughs> well, I was actually thinking how much you both have in common in your world outlook and how you've inspired so many folks. and mentor lots of people after you. So on behalf of that community, thank you to you both. So speaking of holding the ladder, Lillian, for those that come after, you've always embraced your Venezuelan roots. You live so authentically, which is hugely inspiring to others, including me. How has this philosophy enhanced your relationship with those around you, either professionally or personally? Well, I I think that, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're different than when you're in your 40s. So as you mature in life, be authentic, be authentic. And, and yes, be grateful to your ancestors because we're here because all other people really we're standing in the shoulders of, of giants. And that's not just in, in medicine. It's really your family, your roots, your values. So I'm Jewish and I'm very open about my my Jewish heritage and my Hispanic heritage. And people are like, oh, I didn't know there were Jews in Latin America. Uh, yes, we are. And my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So they had to leave everything. They killed a huge percent of the family. My great-grandfather died in Siberia. They could never retrieve him and bury him. So to me, growing up has always been be grateful. Venezuela was a country that opened the doors for my family. And to me, the, the Hispanic heritage has been an amazing part of my life. That allows me both my Judaism and spirituality, but also my Hispanic roots, my way of dancing and living and, and, and being just happy about life helps me connect with people very openly and helps me connect with my patients. I have a story in Jagovi when, when I was an intern, I was one of the few people that spoke Spanish in the hospital besides the people who work in environmental services. At that time, not, there, not that many people spoke open English in New York. And they put me on call on all the Jewish holidays because nobody thought that I was Jewish. So I had to like fight to not be on call on, on Yom Kippur. And then we had a patient that presented with cellulitis, but he was just complaining of pain and pain. And everybody was doing a cardiac workup until I was able to go to the ER and the patient says, my leg hurts. Nobody had lifted the sheets and see the patient had cellulitis. So language barriers are real. And I think connecting to our patients in the language that they speak, it's important to deliver the right care to the patient. So I reiterate that all the time. We live in Miami. I'm fortunate to be in a community that serves patients from all cultural levels, all insured and uninsured. Jackson is a safety net of the county. Uh, and to me, to be able to bring back to our community is 
crucial. That's why I went into medicine and I love helping people and I love helping people from diverse um, cultural backgrounds as well. Lillian, if I could just follow that up with another question, which is, um, I believe your hospital has a pipeline program. Is that right? For young doctors from Latin America. Can you tell us more about that and the role that you've played in that? Sure. So there is a program that preceded me. It's, it's decades ago. Um, Dr. Harrington had a vision and he, he really started working on, on the Harrington program and training, you know, med students, uh, from Latin America. So it's, uh, all the information is on the website. If you search Harrington program, University of Miami and Jackson. And actually a, a very large number of foreign medical grads, uh, that are Hispanics have come through that program and gone through different specialties. And the idea initially was to really train people here in the U.S. for the to go back with that experience to their home countries. Uh, And that really enhances uh, the level of medicine globally, right? Some people have decided to go back to their countries. Some others have stayed here. But that has been, I think, an amazing opportunity. And we've had students uh, from the Harrington program that rotate with us. Some of them, I've written letters of recommendation. And now they're telling me like, hey, I'm finishing my ID fellowship. It was amazing, you know, to work with you. So it brings you a sense of pride when you see someone from going from med student to fellow and then faculty and be part of, inspire their training. So yeah, if any one of you is listening and it's interested, it's a great program. Well, thank you for not only talking the talk, but walking the walk. So Lillian, as we approach ID Week 2023, please share with us the significance of being the first female Hispanic leader serving on the IDSA Board of Directors. What did you hope to achieve in this role? And what do you feel um, that you have achieved? And are we closer to that goal? Well, thank you for that question. I think that what I what I have been able to bring to the board, I I think we bring different perspectives. I was always interested in joining IDSA very early on because I wanted to contribute at a larger level to the society. We all work in our individual hospitals, but what can you do to contribute at a larger level to change policies, to change guidelines, to drive better care, better outcomes and more value? And I think contributing to organized medicine and professional societies brings that opportunity. I never dream I would be in the board of directors. When when I was a fellow or a junior faculty, you would look at the board of directors or Shea or IDSA and, you know, very specific profiles of people. And you would see them walking in the hallways and you would not even dare to say hello to them. You were like, oh, my God, these are like the gods of ID. So to be able to have a seat at the table and be able to bring diversity and diversity in thought, not because... I'm Hispanic, which we bring some salt and pepper to the group and spice, but we also bring diversity talking about transplant infectious diseases. I am the sounding voice on artificial intelligence and technology and how we need to think of innovation. We also um, bring different perspectives on, hey, uh, we are all in different academic centers, but my academic center and my county hospital and, and the health system that I work with also has private community hospitals. So we all bring different perspective. And I love the opportunity to hear from other members of the board. How can we advance the society? What's a strategic vision? How do we want to advance the field? How do we in- increase the compensation of infectious disease doctors? How do we open more doors for foreign medical graduates who want to stay here and need visas and need, you know, job opportunities? and mentoring and sponsoring others. So those are just some of the strategic priorities. And and I think bringing that um, to the table has been extremely valuable. So one example is I, I completed recently a course in artificial intelligence and healthcare, and I brought it to the board. I'm like, what are we doing in ID Week for AI? 
And everybody looked at me like, oh, yeah, ChatGPT. I'm like, no, there's way more than ChatGPT about AI. And there's so much we can do. So I invite everyone who's listening to a session we're going to have Friday morning on ID Week. It's called Meet Me in the Metaverse. The future is now. And we're going to be talking with three amazing speakers on AI and uh, infectious diseases and everything related to micro infection control, stewardship, and everything else we do in ID. So I think having a seat at the table allows you to affect change. So don't be a bystander. When you see that there is an opportunity for you to contribute, join societies and contribute in a meaningful way. Fantastic. So let's explore another concept here. We recently listened uh, with great interest to your podcast with the IDSA with other Hispanic leaders in infectious disease, like current IDSA president, Dr. Carlos de Rio. How can we better support and create pathways for underrepresented minorities in our specialty, particularly those born outside the U.S. without permanent status in the United States? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that's one of the things that we have been really trying to work on. How do we expand collaborations and mentorship? Because we know there are barriers to, you know, to, to Hispanics. Unfortunately, IDSA cannot control the visa and, and immigration process. But what we can control is we can open opportunities for people to volunteer and to understand why it's important to volunteer. I recently had a fellow who heard that podcast and contacted me and said, Please explain to me what does volunteering mean and why should I do it? Because I'm finishing my fellowship. I've never heard of this, right? So we tend to focus in our education a lot on you need to learn how to take care of a patient. You need to learn, you know, infectious diseases, which I want to train solid researchers and solid clinicians. But also explaining to people why participating in these societies brings value to the society and brings value to them. Because all of us, all three of us have joined different societies and we have meaningful contributions. We have written guidelines. You have, you know, contributed to to papers. You are able to bring value and speak at national meetings and and have, you know, a, a more regional, national, international representation. And not only that, I get invited all the time to Latin America because I'm bilingual. So, that to me has been amazing because I connect with my colleagues and that's why I have this global family. I'm able to go and in Brazil, I'm able to go to South America and Central America and connect with the other societies, connect with speakers and teach them what we're doing here and be, bring best practices there. So I do think IDSA has to play an important role, same as Shea, with international ambassadors, with opening the doors from trainees to mid-career and also open the doors for people who are practicing in other countries and make sure that our guidelines and the standards of care that we're putting out are internationally applicable. Many of the guidance that we recommend are very expensive and we sometimes look at the healthcare economics. So I do think if we have international people contributing, we will all gain more value. Great. So to follow up on that, you, you kind of alluded to what IDSA and SHEA can do. What opportunities and resources exist for Hispanic ID specialists in terms of finding mentorship, volunteer opportunities, and becoming future leaders? I think the same opportunities that any Indian, any Haitian, or any European. I really don't think that we're in a world right now that people are looking at me and said, oh, she is Hispanic, pobrecita. You know, I think it's the opposite. Uh, I see that as diversity has been a huge topic. So, and this is, you know, things are very different than maybe 20, 30 years ago. So, I do think that the opportunities exist. Don't be a victim, right? If you want to accomplish something, go for it, show your value. And, you know, I think people are valuable for who they are, not their color of their skin or or where the city where they were born. You're valued for who you are. So what I'm hearing, Lillian, is you're really encouraging people to really be proactive. 
Absolutely. The opportunities, ask questions. The worst that can happen is someone says no. Well, I always say I don't take no for an answer. I will ask, please help me understand why, right? So no, because it's not the right time what you're asking. Like, for example, um, Gonzalo, I want you to mentor me. And you may say, no, I can't. I'm mentoring too many people right now. I, I really don't have the bandwidth. So I would go back to say, okay, thank you. I understand you cannot mentor me. Is there anyone you would recommend I should contact so they could perhaps be a good mentor for me? And that person does not necessarily need to be in your institution. There are many programs for leadership development, and that's another thing that I seek very early in my career. Uh, we, we're all born great, but we, we need to be greater. Be humble, right? What are my weak points? What are the areas that are my strengths? And what are the areas that I need to improve? Be, be, be critical with yourself, right? And seek help in the areas where you need to improve. So the American Association of Medical Colleges has the early, the mid-career, and the ELAM program for women. And that, to me, was an amazing opportunity because I networked with women who were not in infectious diseases, who were actually in other specialties of medicine. And I learned so much about other things that I could do to be better in my career. There are different books that I have read. There are different courses that I have taken. And, and I do think, um, you know, not only ask for help and, you know, take action, but also stay humble and be critical of yourself and look at what can I do to contribute better? Not, not always what others can do for me, but what can I do for others? So be, be humble, be proactive. Don't take no for an answer right away, at least. <laughs> be resilient. I like That's it. That's why. I love it. I love it. Perea, back to you. So Lillian, you mentioned throughout your essay the importance of mentorship and the impact that it has had on you. Uh, can you describe for us a couple of pivotal mentor relationships throughout the course of your career um, and even maybe some recent ones? And don't be afraid to name drop. So for instance, in your essay, you met, you mentioned Arjun and lots of other people. So, you know, go nuts. This is your time to thank those folks. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. I actually sent that article to all my mentors after it was published. And I, I told them like, hey, this is not to brag, but I want you to, to know that I acknowledge you and I'm very grateful for what you did for me. So so I go back to the gratitude piece. I think my first mentor was my my parents, my dad and my mom. So my first two mentors, my mom really always encouraged me to go and seek a career. And she said, you're a woman. You don't know if you're going to be married or not. And you don't know who you're going to be marrying. And you don't know if you're going to be able to support yourself financially. So don't count on marrying a millionaire. Count on developing a career on your own and be able to make a living, whatever you decide to do, and, and do something that you love. So my mom really always encouraged me to study and to, to do something that I was going to be able to support myself, no matter what circumstances. And she also said, we're Jews. And as Jews, you never know when you're going to have to leave the country and you don't know when there's going to be racism. And that happened to my grandparents. They never thought that they were going to have to leave everything behind. And long and behold, I never thought my family was going to have to leave Venezuela. And that's what ended up happening. And thanks, thank you to having a medical career. I was able to, you know, I left Venezuela way before the problems that we're living now existed, but that allowed me to you know, come and continue to practice what I'm passionate about, which is medicine. Many people have to leave their countries and start from zero in another place where they cannot practice what they love. And that's, you know, I've met so many people who are engineers who are now driving Uber because they cannot work in engineering, right? And there's, you know, I think driving Uber is an amazing opportunity. But again, if you studied and you can practice what you love and you're passionate about, 
that's even more amazing. My dad has always been a mentor to me. And my I mentioned that in the paper as well, because my dad always encouraged me. Uh, he discouraged me to, from studying medicine. Uh, and he said, really, as a woman, you know, this is this is not the easiest career. And there is so much more you can do in business or being a lawyer. Uh, but I was stubborn. I don't take no for an answer. And I went into medicine. And I can say my parents are probably the, my proudest fans nowadays. I would say that my kids are also my mentors and you need mentors and sponsors. So I will always say my husband has been a great sponsor, whatever craziness I decide, like, I'm going to do an MBA in the middle of a pandemic. My husband and my kids have been supporting me, but then the academic mentors and, and you mentioned Arjun and Arjun has been a, a beacon to all of us who do stewardship. I first contacted Arjun when I was starting as a junior faculty member. And the first thing I said is I have no funding. I have no research experience. I'm going to do a survey. That's the easiest thing to do. So I found this survey that Arjun had published when he was at Hopkins. I emailed him. I said, there's no way in hell this guy's going to answer to me, right? Lillian Abo from Miami and this, this guy is at Hopkins. Or at that time, I didn't know he was at the CDC. And when I got that answer, oh, my God, I was shocked, right? How can this guy who's such a high level respond? And then we became very longtime friends. And Arjun has always been not only a mentor to me, but a sponsor to so many people and spearheading stewardship. So so I would say kudos to Arjun, who should be the next CDC director. Then I'm going to go into my other mentors, right? Uh, my uncle was was one of my biggest mentors as well. Unfortunately, he passed away with COVID and I was the only person at bedside when, when he passed away. And that that to me was a really hard moment, right? To to be there, to try to help your, your loved one and also your mentor was a really, really difficult moment in my career. But I actually applied everything he told me. And one of the last things was help your patients die with dignity. Hold their hand. Sometimes it's not what you do, it's how you act. And, and that those words have always stick with me, right? Other mentors, Dr. Luis Espinosa was amazing with me. He's one of the first people who helped me and we're longtime friends. He helped me with, you know, when I started doing my observership in HIV. Mac Hutton helped me when I was first starting as faculty and, and helping me, you know, write my first business plan, which I had no idea how to write a business plan and, and get support from the C-suite on stewardship. Rafael Campo is another person that helped me and once told me that when life shuts a door, usually two windows open. And that has always been with me. And when he left uh, the university, I, I gave him actually two, a, a two window picture. And I said, I am so grateful because this is this is always true. Right. When you hear no, find find another route. And Ingrid Vasilio felt this. She's a dear friend. And she actually co-authored with me the AI in ID paper. She's she's a trailblazer and uh, she's not an infectious disease physician. Uh, but she has been one of my greatest sponsors and mentors as well in terms of leadership, advancement, and always see, thinking outside the box. Uh, so I think different mentors in my career have brought different learning, different experiences, and seek different mentors. Don't think that you need to have one mentor your entire life. You can add mentors into your recipe and you will learn and contribute to their career and they will contribute to yours. Thank you, Lillian. That was a really beautiful synopsis of um, the joys of mentorship. So you've woven these really wonderful phrases and life lessons throughout your essay and our time together today. What are your top five lessons for a young professional who's just starting out in either IP, stewardship, transplant, public health, any of those? So how many do you want me to say? 
<laughs> Let's go with five. I'm sure you have at least that many. I think we've touched upon many of them. So let's let's circle back, right? Gratitude, passion, resilience, compassion is the other one. And compassion with yourself. Take time. Take time to think. Take time to rest. Not everything is a crisis. Not everything is an emergency. And five, seek mentors and sponsors, but also hold the ladder for others. Help those that come behind you. And look at what can you do for others, not just what others can do for you. Great. So we want to come back to a, a theme that's actually popped up a couple of times. And Priya knows where I'm going with this. Uh, we've spoken and actually published something recently from another leader who was talking about the, the virtues and values of an MBA or master's in business administration degree. Tell us about why you went to and sought an MBA and why, what you think it can do, what it did for your career and why it should be or could be a value to the listeners of this podcast. When I started doing stewardship as a, as a very junior faculty, I had to go to C-suite and pitch why I needed a data mining software and why I needed more FTEs. And I had no idea. I didn't learn any of this in my fellowship. They didn't teach me business, right? So here I am. You go through med school, you do your residency, you do your fellowship, and then I have to go to the C-suite, sit in front of a CEO and a CFO and tell them why I need resources. And we're very naive. You go like, hey, I have this great idea. I want this program. Give me money. And they look at you like, yeah, write me a business plan. And you're like, we didn't have ChatGPT back then that could write a business plan for you. So I had to seek out help and like, hey, how do you write a business plan? And, and what really, you know, what you really need to learn? How do I tell the C-suite I need resources? And what's going to be the return on the investment? And why should this, if, if, if you only have, you know, a pile of money, why should they give me that money rather than give it to the radiologist who's asking for a new CAT scan machine, right? So early in my career, I had to learn the business language. And like everything, you have multiple successes and many, many failures. And you learn as you go. And then I had my kids and, you know, it was not the right time. But then during the pandemic, it was sort of like a, an epiphany. Because during the pandemic, I had to work with the governor, with the county mayors, with the city mayors, with my C-suite. I had to look at the frontline providers, we had to figure out how we're going to be stockpiling masks and making sure that nobody ran out of PPE, medications. How do we allocate those medications when the government was only giving you a finite amount of monoclonals or, or, or remdesivir initially? And how do you distribute when, when, you know, unfortunately you want equitable care, right? You don't want to accentuate the inequities, but sometimes you have to ration care. So you start looking at the pie in a very different way. And during that time, I was burned out. Uh, like the first, I don't know how it was for you, but 2020 for me, it was just, I was sleeping maybe three or four hours a day at the beginning of the pandemic. It was just pure insanity. I have seven hospitals, four jails, two nursing homes, and I'm leading stewardship, infection control, getting calls from transplant who didn't want to stop transplanting people. The C-suite doesn't want to stop the ORs because that's the engine that generates revenue. And then you have your friends, your family, and everyone you know, people who you've never talked to in 20 years, who now they believe they're your best friends again, calling you and asking for advice. So there was a point where I said, you know what? I love medicine. I love what I do, but I need something more. And the opportunity to the MBA came and the first year was all on Zoom. And then the second year we went back into class. And it was one of the best experiences in my life. Why? First, you're going back to school. It's so cool right? I haven't been in school since med school. So you're going back to the university. So you're a student again. 
Two, you're meeting with people from different backgrounds. My MBA was in executive healthcare. So all these people work in healthcare, but they see different, different views of healthcare from finance, from medical education, from private practice. Some others have their own practice. So different business acumen, but still we all want the same thing. You want to deliver better care and you want to low, lower the cost of care. Then I learned business economics. I learned politics. I learned how the law is written. I learned healthcare law. So it wasn't, I went initially with the concept that I want to learn more finance and how to be more refined and how to create my own investment portfolio, which, you know, I did. But also I wanted to learn the other side, the business side of healthcare, because if you want to improve care for all, you need to understand the language. So to me, it has brought me some concepts that I already intuitively knew. But it helped me also be a better leader with my team, human resources. How do you hire the best talent? How do you retain the best talent? Help me work with my C-suite leaders and getting involved in different projects just beyond infection control and stewardship, but things that hit the bottom line at a large level for the health system. So I would say it's not for everyone, but to me, it has been an incredible opportunity and it has opened a completely different network. Uh, some of my professors were Donna Shalela and Alex Azar, both former secretaries of health. Alex Azar came and told us how he started the whole warp speed. Uh, Donna Shalela told us how she started, you know, how she created HIPAA and why she created it. So it's a different, it's a completely different level of people that are in the room with you that you normally will not have access going to, you know, one of our infectious disease meetings. Sounds like an amazing experience. And I, you can see the passion and enthusiasm you have for it in you know, thinking about it in retrospect. So it's really cool. Now, I think Priya is going to wrap us up with probably that question we ask everyone. It's very deep. It's mm-hmm. very insightful. It gives us a glimpse into your soul. So take it away, Priya. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. So basically, the way that we wrap every one of these podcasts is to ask our guests what they're currently reading or listening to, including podcasts or like books on tape on the way to work for either professional development or leisure that you would recommend to our readers and listeners and why. So one of the books that I recently read and I have recommended to everyone is The Empire of Pain or El Imperio del Dolor in Spanish. And it's the story of the Sackler family and how we ended up in the opioid crisis. Netflix had a recent series, Painkillers. It's okay. It's too Hollywood for me. I think the book is a hundred times better. I would strongly recommend you read it because it will also be a very eye-opener to how we ended up in the antimicrobial resistance crisis and the concept of drug reps and advertisement in medicine. So to me, it's a, it's a very sad story, but it's, it's incredible. And I, I really enjoyed reading that book. Podcasts that I have been listening, there are several. Um, listening one, I think, is change your mind, think, change your thoughts. So I tend to listen. I have a mix of like the, the weekly energy boost from the Kabbalah Center. So I do have my, my Wuji side, right? Uh, that likes to think of my past uh, lives and my soul and where am I headed? And then I have the more grounding ones. There is one called Transportista, which is a story of this narco drug dealer who's in jail and starts calling people and telling the, so the whole story, how he entered millions of drugs in the US. So I hear a mix of everything. I hear reggaeton and then I can hear Mozart. So I have a, I don't know how many lives I've lived, but I am enjoying this one. I love it. From reggaeton to Mozart. Well, thank you, Lillian Abo. Muchísimas gracias. Un placer. Thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure having you on the Ashley podcast. 
I know Priya and I have really enjoyed ourselves. We've learned a lot from you. We can sense your, your enthusiasm and energy is palpable. And I hope that's how our listeners find it also. Uh, again, for our listeners, we've had Dr. Lillian Abel with us. She has a Women in Epidemiology or Women in ASHI publication in ASHI, of course. It's titled Dr. Lillian M. Abo, Blazing Trails and Building a Global ID Family from Caracas to Miami. I would encourage all of you to download it. It is free and open access worldwide on the ASHI website. Thank you again so much, Dr. Nori. Any last minute words? Only to say that I am so thrilled that two of my favorite people are getting to spend this hour together. And it's like really a dream come true for me. So thank you both. No, I need to say a heart, you know, thank you. I'm, I'm so honored and humbled that, that you actually wrote this piece and, and to be here with both of you. It's been a great pleasure. So mil gracias. And I hope to see you in person to give you a hug soon. Definitely. Yeah, I do. Hasta la próxima. Thank you so much. Thank you.